Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. Our current teaching series is on prayer, and we're basing the talk each week on one line of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. Prayer is a somewhat basic tenet of a relationship with the divine, isn't it? But in that a lot of us are aware of our own needs and limitations in whole new ways right now, not to mention the needs of our city, our nation and our world, we thought this might be a good time to look in depth at what Jesus meant when he said, this is how you should pray. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everyone. Good evening, good afternoon, good night. Whenever you're watching this, it's good to have you with us. Um, and it's been a week, hasn't it? Oh, I forgot to say, we're back in the white room because um, the kids have homeschooling Zoom has taken over everything. Anyway, it's been a week. I mean, probably every week in 2020 has been a bit of a week, but this one seems to have been particularly 2020 in its sort of weekiness. Extremely worrying presidential debate, and then uh, the president and the first lady being taken into quarantine because they've contracted COVID. So, um, you know, I don't know if uh, it's been more 2020 than this, but it feels a particularly 2020 uh, sort of week. Although probably next week, it's going to be even worse. Anyway, I hope you're doing okay. I don't mean that. It might not be. But when things get extreme and the voices at the extremities get louder and more vociferous, more aggressive and more in our face, we need more than ever the otherworldly, the heavenly voice of Jesus to be heard. And so as we continue our series on Jesus' prayer, let's choose to hear him once more. And this week in particular, I've got to tell you, I don't think it's going to be easy. I did not enjoy writing this talk. It's very good. It is a good talk, don't worry about that. But it wasn't easy. Because this week uh, we're praying this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or as probably most of us learnt it, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgiveness. Now, I often wonder why Jesus didn't just teach us to pray more along the lines of, when you pray, pray this. Father in heaven, thank you that I'm amazing. Thank you that you made me amazing. And thank you that I'm more amazing than I could ever possibly imagine. And please, would you shower me with material blessings to prove not only that you're amazing, but I am also amazing. And may you humble my enemies. Uh, that both you and I know are awful, terrible people. And would you humble them in such a way that they come back groveling to me and asking for my forgiveness, and yours, of course, as well, but, but mainly mine. Uh, amen. Because that's how I'd like to pray, and it is some, sometimes how I pray. Uh, and I'd find writing a talk about that actually quite gratifying. But instead, Jesus goes for, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, when Jesus includes this in his definitive guide on how to pray, it's almost like he knows that forgiveness is infinitely world-alteringly powerful and actually what the world is in most need of. It's not almost. That was me using an ironic rhetorical device. He does know. Not almost. Definitely know. He's God. But it's almost, there I go again, like he knows that the world doesn't need self-congratulation, self-importance, or condemnation, or righteous indignation. 
but grace. Amazing grace of which forgiveness is its calling card, its primary device, its signature move. Now you are, and I am, of course, amazing. We need to remember that, and it's good to pray for ourselves. Definitely pray for yourselves, because boy, don't we need it, especially you. But this week, it's going to take all of us, and I do include myself in this, of course, a large amount of faith to actually believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he tells us to pray, forgive us as we forgive others. And if I may... I wonder if it's not too painful, can I ask you as you listen to this talk to actually call to mind the people or the person with whom you have the most beef right now. It might be someone who is currently in your life or someone from decades long ago, someone close to you or someone you've never actually even met before. But if you have the courage, please try to keep that person in mind. As we, forgive, as we consider forgiveness, and uh, let me assure you, I am doing the same as I do this talk. Now, as we've said over the last few weeks, the Lord's Prayer, it's the prayer of the kingdom. As we pray it, we stand in this sort of tension of the inaugurated, but the not yet fulfilled kingdom. We're in the now and the not yet. And forgiveness is a hallmark of that kingdom. We receive it fully, once and for all, the now, and we continue to need it, not just for ourselves, but for others ongoingly because of the not yet nature, ours and everyone else's, as evidenced, you know, by all of the pain and hurt going around. Now, if we veer too far into the now, we will believe all is rosy and actually nothing needs forgiving, which feels, which obviously fails to take seriously ours and other people's destructive behaviour. But if we veer too far into the not yet, we will believe everything is awful, everyone is guilty and worthless slugs, which actually fails to take seriously the starting point of this kingdom, Jesus' finished, accomplished, defining moment on the cross, extending limitless forgiveness, like some sort of nuclear grace bomb, with its mushroom cloud of forgiveness and grace pouring out to all humankind for all of time. Maturity in the Christian life means embracing that tension amongst many others. On the one hand, because of the now, because of the kingdom bringer Jesus, forgiveness is total and assured. So we know that the forgive us our sins bit is not a hopeful or desperate plea. It is actually a surefire statement of faith. It's like saying the earth is round, grass is green, the Cleveland Browns suck. To be a Christian is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that forgiveness is ours. All because God became flesh, hung on a tree and gloriously rose from the grave. But it's not just to know, it is also to experience the setting free, the love of the Father, the acceptance of Jesus, the indwelling of his life-giving spirit. It is saying, I believe in the kingdom bringer and the kingdom is here. And the kingdom has forgiveness, total forgiveness, as its hallmark and defining principle. So, forgive us our sins is not dependent on the following clause, as we forgive others, like some sort of prid, quid, prid, quid pro quo. Rather, those who are forgiven are forgiven entirely, independently, 
purely by the grace of an all-forgiving God. And therefore, we are fully forgiven and we can live out our forgiveness for others as a natural consequence. Because we're forgiven, so we forgive. So that's the one side of the tension. On the other hand, there is the not yet. And because of it, forgiveness continues to be required of us, both the receiving of it and the giving out. We, along with everyone else, is not yet fully redeemed. So people are going to hurt us. Christians are going to hurt us. Leaders are going to hurt us. I'm not excusing anyone's behaviour, I'm just saying this is how things are. So we're going to need to give forgiveness and we're going to need to receive it until that day when we enter glory and the kingdom of God is no longer a yet, uh, but it is a completely and fully realised now. But as we go on, first I want to make a little comment about our culture. Do you know that there is a fist emoji? a gun emoji, a dagger emoji, a bomb emoji, a shrugging of shoulders emoji, a red face with anger emoji, but no forgiveness emoji. There is a switchblade emoji, an axe emoji, but no forgiveness emoji. There are also three different ghost emojis and a juice box emoji, which is not really relevant, but still no forgiveness emoji, or at least not yet. There has been an online petition for quite a while now to create a forgiveness emoji, including a um, crowdsourced funding program, which has meant that a forgiveness emoji has been chosen and it's been sent to Unicode, and there is a chance that it will be included from 2021. And won't that be great? To be able to tell someone you forgive them and then emoji them. I don't know if you emoji people. Is that what people do? The kids emoji people? I, I mean, I can barely turn my phone on, so don't listen to me. But it's going to be great to be able to forgiveness emoji people. Because I think it's long overdue. But the reason for this, it being long overdue, and actually the reason that there is a quite a strong chance that the forgiveness emoji will not be included, is Unicode are unsure that it will be that popular, and that is one of the criteria to be included. It won't be that popular, possibly, because forgiveness is hard. The steaming ears emoji is just so much easier, isn't it? Because forgiveness is not popular. There isn't much of it about. I can't uh, remember actually the last time that I read any um, piece on a news website, and I read quite a lot of news websites, about forgiveness. In fact, I actually did an online archive search of one of the most popular uh, online news outlets, and uh, their most recent opinion or comment piece about forgiveness was in 2016. That was ages ago. I was like 20 years old in 2016. Because culture doesn't really want to talk about forgiveness. Instead, it settles for other. And I use this word advisedly, lesser alternatives. Now, they're not necessarily bad or even wrong, but they are lesser. The first, I think, is tolerance. Now, tolerance is on one level, of course, a hugely noble goal. And it's worth saying that in a culture where morality and right and wrong are seemingly kind of open to um, innumerable, innumerable interpretations, tolerance is going to need to be the natural consequence because, you know, we've got to love everyone despite the fact that they might have some very strange beliefs. Uh, which is obviously on one level very Christian and exactly what God does to all of us. So tolerance, yes, good. As Paul says in Colossians and in Ephesians, we need to bear with one another. Because we do, don't we? 
because people can be really annoying so much of the time. The alternative is just kind of all-out carnage all the time, as all of us tell each one of us just how annoying we are and how we should not be annoying. And anyone who's been married, to me in particular, will know quite how godly and necessary a virtue forbearance is. But the problem with tolerance is that it has its limits. Even for those who consider themselves the most chill, the most love everyone, accept everyone, live and let live, we're all children of God type, so let's tolerate one another, even they can become extremely intolerant. Just look at what happened off the back of J.K. Rowling's probably ill-advised forays into commenting about identity politics. She has been demonised by those who would traditionally call themselves extremely liberal and accepting. Now, I am not saying I agree or disagree with J.K. Rowling, but I am saying that it's good to acknowledge that all of us actually can become quite aggressively intolerant from time to time, but that that is not necessarily a bad thing because tolerance has its limits, and it must, because some things, lots of things, in fact, should absolutely not be tolerated. If we look at what's happened since George Floyd's murder, so much of what has happened has happened because fearless men and women have stood up and said, we are done tolerating this. We're done with being told to shut up and accept injustice. We're done with being told to be patient and wait for inequality that never seems to materialise. And we're done with playing nicely and accepting the system. Although, of course, people of colour in particular have been saying this for a very long time from the beginning. It's just really the fact that there seems to be some momentum is that white people have finally got on board in a majority. Shame on us for taking so long. And before we get into any self-congratulation, let's be clear, we're nowhere near where we need to be yet. Tolerance must have its limits, and at its limit is righteous, godly judgment. Another good thing. But one I'm sure we're all personally aware of, that can often descend into culture's other alternative to forgiveness, which is vengeance. We swing between the two so easily, don't we? Tolerance, 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 retribution. Punishment, oh no, forbearance. Swinging, all the time. Not in that way. Jesus, though, offers the third way, which isn't so much of a third and equal alternative, but one of a completely different order entirely. Unlike tolerance, forgiveness requires us to actually acknowledge the gravity of the sin, to call it what it is. But unlike retribution, or even actually condemnation in fact, it doesn't allow us to stay there puffed up on our own righteous indignation. It forces us to start running. Running towards the perpetrators of our pain. Shedding our dignity as we do so shedding our shame and often running in naked vulnerability, embracing them and forgiving them. Tolerance speaks the language of loving kindness, condemnation the language of righteous judgment. Forgiveness doesn't actually speak at all, it sings. It sings the sweetest of song, the song of amazing grace. Which is, of course, to say, not to say that forgiveness is going to be easy. 
It's certainly not. In the example I've just used, we're talking about deep-held racist evil beliefs. We're talking about white supremacy, condoned and enabled by some, justified and actually promoted by others. And we can add to that all the other evil that we're confronted with right across the globe, right now and at any moment in history. I don't need to list it, I'm sure we're all aware of it. But nevertheless, Jesus is asking us to forgive, to run with compassion, without shame, towards our transgressors. How can we do that? Well, to start with, let's hear again Jesus' most famous parable, which isn't really actually about a prodigal son, but rather a running father. And this is read by Jema. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thank you, Jema. So culture rarely talks about forgiveness, but it was at the very centre of Jesus' message. All Israel at the time was looking forward to the moment when God would deliver them from occupation and Roman rule, but they knew deep down in the core of their beings, actually written into their story over centuries and centuries as they uh, experienced exile and other occupations and recalled by prophet after prophet after prophet that the reason always for their plight was because of their sin, national and personal sin. So, for Israel to be liberated was to have sin forgiven. It's why Jesus' proclamation, My child, your sins are forgiven, uttered right at the beginning and again throughout his whole ministry, by him with no rabbinic uh, training, with no priestly qualifications, is quite so shocking to his audience. Not just because, forget that you know, it's only God who can forgive sins and Jesus is equating himself with God, it's also deeply shocking for his hearers because in forgiving sins, what Jesus is saying is liberation is here, an end to all our struggle and pain because the kingdom has come and it has come because I'm the king and therefore sin is forgiven. Because what forgiveness does is it frees us. It liberates us from conforming any longer to the patterns of this world and its culture of fiery retribution or blind tolerance. And just as importantly, forgiveness liberates us to be forgiveness people. Not just forgive us our sins, God, but let us, enable us, forgive other people. Doling out forgiveness. 
willy and indeed nilly, in the most extravagant ways possible, just as we've received from him. Now, I know um, this is a very familiar parable, but it's worth reminding ourselves quite how shocking it was, completely intentionally shocking, of course, but quite how shocking it was to Jesus' original audience. We need to be shocked, again, by forgiveness. In fact, we always need to be shocked by forgiveness because forgiveness is shocking. Old men didn't run. In fact, the more senior you were, the less likely you were to even walk fast. Jesus, therefore, wants us to experience the embarrassment, the awkwardness of seeing this old man run, having lost all his dignity. He doesn't even care what he looks like or what social impropriety he is performing. And when we realise why he's running, the shock is all the more. He's running to greet someone, someone who has wished him dead, who has put a curse on him, who has disgraced him and his wife and his whole family. And he's still running. Now, if the father had chosen condemnation, he wouldn't be running. He wouldn't even have left the house. He would be waiting, getting probably more and more angry. And if the father had chosen tolerance, he wouldn't be running because the passion wouldn't be there. Tolerance is actually relatively cold, but instead he's running because forgiveness is richer and higher and deeper and more shocking and definitely harder than we usually ever really understand. But on its path is the way to freedom for ourselves and our whole world. So what then is forgiveness not? It is not forgetting. For, forgive and forget is actually often uh, not very good advice at all because sometimes it's very important for us to remember because actually in remembering what has happened to us, being able to be fully aware of the pain and the hurt that has been caused us, therein lies the power of our forgiveness. It's what moves it from simply kind of sweeping things under the carpet or pretending that they didn't really hurt, uh, giving people a free pass to actual real grace. It acknowledges the pain, but it doesn't punish it. And not forgetting is also what can help us be reassured in the times to come that we've actually forgiven someone because we can recall quite how painful it was, but know that that pain no longer has the same power over us. Now, God, of course, remembers our sins no more. He blots them from the record. He removes them from his memory so that even if we were to ask him or to try and recall them to him, he would say, I do not know what you're talking about. And isn't that wonderful? Such is the forgiveness of God, but we are not him. But it also doesn't mean that we need to be best friends or trust that person or even keep them in our life. And it doesn't mean that we need to be a doormat ready to be trampled upon in exactly the same way over and over again. Because, you know, we're Christians. We forgive. That's what we do. Please come and abuse me. Instead, the great power of forgiveness is that it frees us from those who have hurt us. It actually allows us to separate ourselves from them, which is often precisely exactly what we need to do. Sometimes we do need to stop talk calling them and texting them. Sometimes we do need to delete their number. Sometimes we need to break off all ties. But, and this is another thing that forgiveness is not, it is not, and it can't therefore be half-hearted. 
Which is not to say that it will or must be instantaneous or easy. In fact, it can be anything but. It can be extremely difficult and it can take a lifetime. And that's okay. It is a process. But it's a process that we want to fully engage in. Because unforgiveness will only ever ensnare us. We can be, can't we, tempted to think that whilst we are not forgiving someone, that is causing them pain. Haha, <laughs> I'm not going to forgive you because I want you to suffer. Now, in my experience, people who have caused us pain that we need to forgive actually are often completely unaware that they've caused any damage or they're unwilling to admit that they have or that they have any thought that they might need to be forgiven at all. And unforgiveness, therefore, really only ever harms ourselves. So let us commit to the full process, however long or arduous that may be. And finally, forgiveness does not require justice. In fact, it can't. As soon as forgiveness has any conditions on it, it stops being forgiveness and it starts being something else. This is what makes it so difficult, but also so lofty and divine. It really does let people have and behave in exactly the same way, or even worse, over and over again. Here is some deep shock to the already shocking story of the running father. The implications of that story are pretty clear. The younger son, having had his celebratory feast, having been welcomed home and shown unconditional love, having had his father not even listen to his penitent pleas because he's so concerned to welcome him home and embrace him and forgive him and tell everyone we're going to have a party. Nevertheless, the son could still wake up and the next morning decide, well, got food in my stomach, clothes on my back. This was great, but actually, I realise I'm still out of there. I still want to go. And he could say to his father, I'm off again. Thanks. You'll probably be, a bit, be dead the next time I'm back here, so anyway, goodbye. And if the son were to do that, the father would still be there, day after day, watching, waiting, and as soon as he saw his son while he was still far off, again he would run, shamelessly, undignified, and overjoyed to see his son again, who was dead, and now alive. And if his son did it again, the father would be there again. And again, and again, and again, and again, with no less fervour, no less meaning, no less tears in his eyes or joy in his face. Because the grace of God does not have any limits, and forgiveness is its hallmark. Now, I'm not saying that we should forego justice. Preaching it, living it, demanding it, administering it. As we have been saying till we're blue in the face, justice is the mark of the kingdom. And boy, don't we need justice for our world right now. Forgiveness does not preclude justice. But I am saying that as Jesus people, we must forgive it all. Unforgiveness, however justified, however understandable, gets us nowhere. Let us have faith in the Jesus who
who tells us to forgive as we've been forgiven. I will end with a story. Then we'll uh, have a song of worship and then I'm going to come back and just lead a time of ministry. So um, please stick around just till the end. A, um, a friend of mine who's kind of an old man these days and has been for a while in fact, uh, when he was a bit of a younger father, his, um, he was deeply troubled, deeply hurt um, because his son, one of his sons, uh, was basically a drug addict and um, was causing so much pain to the family. He would uh, go off to parties and to raves and sometimes be gone for days on end, no one knew where he was. Um, and, but my friend decided that uh, whatever and whenever his son called, he would go and pick him up from, what, uh, from whatever situation he was in, any time of the day. He would go and drive and find him and take him home. And so he would do this. He would do this at all hours of the night. He would go in his pyjamas, letting go of any dignity or shame, and go and find his son. And every single time his son got in the car, my friend would say to him, I love you and I'm proud of you. And that would be it. His son um, did finally get his act together. He actually became a Christian. He's now a church leader. And he said if there was one thing that kept him believing he could change, one thing that meant he could countenance the idea that God existed or that God even loved him, one thing that gave him hope, it was his father doing that. It was his father showing him unconditional love and acceptance. Now the pain to the family, the pain to the father, extraordinary, huge. He wasn't denying that these things hurt, but he was, in that moment, over and over again, forgiving them. Because on the path of forgiveness, the end is liberation and freedom. And that is what we need, and that's what our world needs. So when we pray, forgive us our transgressors. Let us bring to mind everything things that affect us directly, things that don't, all the issues of the world, and ask God to forgive them to fig and help us to forgive them too, so that we might have hope and life and a future. So let me pray and then we'll come back for ministry. God, I thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for your compassion. And Lord, we need your power to forgive. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We commit to it. In your name. Amen. Over to you, Ben. Hear my cry, O oh God, unto my presence from the corners of the land. A cry to Thee I'll send, and when I march. 
me to the rock that is higher than I Lead me to the rock that is higher than I Lead me to the rock that is higher than I Let me dwell in your house have been for me a refuge by your power and from my enemy you've been my strong tower and when I'm Let me dwell in